Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It... Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. Ten volumes available in paperback, ebook, Kindle, and audiobook at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon as well. So please, folks, have at it. Get yourself a couple of copies. I'm working on getting volume 11 wrapped up soon, and that'll be out, and then we'll begin the audiobook. And by the way, before I bring my brother in, this month, uh, Saturday, the 20th of January, I'm going to be on Coast to Coast again, uh, which you know or may not know airs out of uh, California, IA, and uh, myself and Richard Surrett are going to have another little go-round on the hairy man. So tune into that if you get a chance, all right? And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Marvelous, marvelous. A little chilly here today, but the sun was shining, and it was nice to see it again. Definitely (laughs) chilly here as well, but the sun was out. I didn't get out much. It was a real busy day at work today. Okay, well, that's the way it goes, right? You need those sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like in the hospital where I work, there's no windows in our area. You know, you're like in the uh, catacombs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hopefully not too many dead people under your feet. Yeah, well, you know, and the irony, Kev, when they revamped this area that is now all workplace... Uh, There are two windows on the wall, like from the outside of the building. They covered both of them up on the inside remodeling. Well, you know. Like, who needs windows, right? Hey, hey. So we have, like, some cheesy artwork hanging up where the windows were? No, they just have some cheesy paint that costs, like, a nickel a gallon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not exactly exciting, but oh, uh, boy. it's home. <laughs> <laughs> Easy to concentrate. No distractions. Oh my god! At least from outside the room. Yeah, you can thank the state for that. I think <laughs> my friend said the other day. Uh, I was talking to him about painting my kitchen, and I was thinking of a shade of green and this and that. And then he says, "Yeah, how about?" Mental Institution Green, or whatever he called it. (laughs) And I was like, what? And uh, he explained it to me. He said, yeah, that's like a standard uh, puke green color that they used in all the 
psychiatric wards and different types of institutions. Nice. <laughs> That's something to aim for in your decor. Yeah, I'm going to go into Benjamin Moore and say, hey, you got any mental institution greed? Oh, yeah, we got a special on it. Yeah. I got five gallons for a dollar. I got to get rid of Buy it. Buy a half gallon, get a half gallon free. <laughs> it's in the same can. <laughs> Yeah, buy a gallon and get a free straitjacket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, what do we have, Kevin? Our cryptids in the news, another oddities segment today. Well, this week, Bill, we are going to get the creep on. <laughs> oh, I love the creep. Last week, we were with the hairy man. This week, I'm going with the creep. <laughs> you know, creeps are okay, as long as they don't live next door to you. Well, yeah, it's... <laughs> Speaking of living next door, you wouldn't want to live next door to this place. So, okay. <laughs> uh, this place is informally known as the Dead Children's Playground. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, nice, pleasant story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my and, God. Uh, the formal name of it is Maple Hill Cemetery. Much uh -huh. nicer. Uh -huh. uh, and it's located in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, good old Huntsville. Aerospace City. Exactly. Rocket City. Right? Rocket City. And Al and that uh, cemetery in Alabama is home to a record eighty thousand graves. Wow! And it's in a massive hundred thousand acre space. So huge place. Wow! And it's pretty old. Um, it was given the name, I think, around nineteen oh one. So been around for more than a hundred years with that name. Mm -hmm. And it's got people buried there from you know. The uh, uh, estimated 187 unnamed Confederate soldiers and uh, local families that were knowingly laid to rest during the Civil War. And then Huntsville was ravaged by the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. Okay. So, you know, there's no way to really know how many folks died there and how many children died in the Spanish flu epidemic. But it was absolutely tragic. They think it's tens of thousands of kids. Yeah, and 1918 was a bad year, man, in regards to that. Really bad year. I think that's the year that the children at Fatima, two of them, had succumbed to the epidemic. Okay. Or pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, crazy stuff. So, um, and uh, the way this goes is they say passersby, right, because it's right here on the edge of town. It's got like this limestone wall uh, kind of setting it a little bit down from the surrounding area on three sides. Okay. And uh, passers-by, when they come by, they often see the swings moving on their own, uh, even when there's no breeze and no one around, as well as seeing orbs or spectral figures around the swings. Now, wait a second. There's an actual playground in the graveyard? Next to the graveyard. Oh, yeah. right next to it. Okay. Right next to it. Great spot, right? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> got to give the kids a place to play. Uh, I guess so. You know, you can always run around the cemetery and dance around the tombstones, you know. <laughs> you know, I meant the, the dead kids. <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> Don't mix up the dead kids and the live kids. All right, all right. No black-eyed children were hurt during no this black recording. black-eyed children were hurt in this episode. <laughs> You know, and, and you, you know, you talked about the pandemic bill. So, you know, they talk about the stats, uh, about 50 million people worldwide and, and Huntsville in the U.S. was hit apparently particularly hard. 
So the hospital beds were all filled. The doctors were working long shifts in hopes of uh, easing some of the patient's misery. Many of the patients were actually treated at home because there was no room in the hospitals. And um, there were large quarantine signs all over the place, all over the houses and everything. And, you know, it basically resulted in uh, the disease spreading through entire families, right, entire households. Mm. And um, to try to prevent the spread of the disease, so we're going to further get the creep on here, parents cautioned children to leave the windows closed, and they created a sing-song rhyme as a reminder. Ready? Uh, yeah, I'm ready. It had a bird. Its name was Enza. I opened the window, and in flew Enza. Uh, I didn't make that up. Yeah, well, I wish they didn't make it up. Yeah. What a nasty little jingle. You know, it might have been a little better with a little guitar backup, but... Uh, Maybe. Maybe. Standalone, no good. <laughs> okay. An influenza. Yeah. So, you know, tens of thousands of kids have died here. Many, many episodes of uh, seeing the swings floating around, hearing voices, seeing orbs around the swing sets and spectral images around the swing sets. And, you know, sometimes they hear the laughter of the children as they're playing, even though there's no one visible in the playground. Boy, oh boy, can you imagine walking by and uh, having that occur while you're, you know, there? No, and, you know, we, unfortunately, we have a lot of these creepy stories where, you know, they're around these graveyards and something's going on where the souls are trapped or whatever. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it is, but. Boy, oh boy. It's not good. And uh, obviously the graveyard is not. Uh, named the Dead Children's Playground. No, it's uh, Maple Hill Cemetery. Yeah, Maple Hill Cemetery. Locally, they call it the Dead Children's Cemetery. Well, you would have to think that uh, quite a number of things uh, must have happened there uh, for it to grab that tag. Oh, yeah. Lots of stories about it. And then the park next to Maple Hill Cemetery, where these swing sets are, is called Maple Hill Park. Mm-hmm. And that's known as the Dead Children's Playground. Ay, 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 ay. Beautiful, huh? Boy, it makes you want to move right in, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, get a house next door to the Dead Children's Playground. <laughs> yeah. Probably on the cheap. <laughs> I hear it's a good deal. <laughs> wow, this house is really nice and only yeah, 50000 It's really livable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what so. a freaking bizarre thing, I t- man. I told you we were going to get the creep on. What do you got for us today, Bill? Well, you know, I told you before this podcast, Gabrielia, that I had been kind of avoiding this one. It's one of the most fantastic accounts that I've ever taken. Uh, It's a little lengthy, but uh, stay with me here, folks, because this account is one for the record books, and it is just chock full of detail and information. And it was told to me by Trevor Riley and his wife, Sarah. Uh, They had brought this amazing sighting to my attention uh, going back like, geez, must be like five years ago now, Kev, maybe more. Hmm. 
And this is what Trevor had to say. Although I never swore, uh, although I swore never to speak of exactly where we were when this took place, I am free to tell you that we were in Idaho. My wife and I had a favorite little picnic area that we frequented at the time. It was a little getaway where we could drive in, cook up some dogs and burgers, and walk around a little in the woods, enjoying nature and each other's company. On one of these outings, I had my old boombox sitting on the tailgate of the truck, as we usually did, and we were playing some old David Bowie or Ziggy Stardust, to be more exact. As the music was playing and we were eating, a fellow came walking by and said, I love your music, guys. My wife asked, are you a Bowie fan? To which he said, I am the biggest Bowie fan alive. So we invited him over for a beer and a hot dog. His name was Charlie, and we soon found out that he was retired from the railroad and living out here on a pension. As the conversation progressed, we found out that he had come from the tri-state area, as did we, and he then asked us if we had ever seen Bowie live. We told him we had seen him once at Radio City during the 70s winter, to which he said that he must have been at the same show. Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, am I correct? We started laughing and reminiscing about that night and the lifestyles we had at the time. Now, what are the odds of people from the same area having seen the same show bumping into each other in Idaho over 40 years later? It was kind of freaky, but also very cool. So we had been BSing and eating for about an hour when the conversation took an unexpected turn. We were chatting about our mutual love for the wilderness and this countryside in particular. When Charlie said, I do a lot of hiking up north, hunting for Bigfoot. My wife and I glanced at each other like this dude had dropped too many hits of acid. But he was persistent and quite sincere in his speech. So we listened. He asked us what we thought of the whole Bigfoot thing and if we believed they were actually real. We told him that we guessed that we uh, we told him that we guessed that we hadn't really thought about it that much and then we asked, "What about you? Have you seen any?" Well, let me tell you. We had no idea the can of worms that we had just opened. He pulled out his iPod and started showing us pictures and even some live video that he had taken. It was incredible. Again, I cannot emphasize enough the dude's sincerity and forthrightness about this whole deal. The stills and video were outstanding, and he said that he spends about two months exploring and hiking around the same area every year. He had learned to look for the signs of the habitations, coming to the understanding of how they live and what they do, and that he had reached a point where he felt that they knew him and were okay with him being around. Now, I know that you and most people immediately take the jump that the photos and everything else today are staged and or manipulated on the computer, as did we. But we asked him if he sees them on a regular basis, and he answered emphatically, absolutely. He then asked if we would like to come by his place at some point in time so that he could show us some really cool stuff he had found. Now, don't get me wrong, we were not afraid of this guy. He seemed very down-to-earth and normal. 
But this whole affair about Bigfoot and the pictures that came with it was a little more than strange. At any rate, we exchanged numbers, saying it was nice to meet you and all that jazz, and then we wrapped up the afternoon's barbecue. For weeks after we had met Charlie, my wife and I had endless discussions about what we had seen and had been told, which led us to call Charlie and arrange to see everything else that he said he had. When we finally made it over to his house, we learned that he had a surprisingly nice pad. The decor screamed of somebody who loved the outdoors, and there was woodsy and nature-related stuff everywhere. Antlers on the wall, rock collections in wooden trays, photos of birds and animals and fish everywhere. And on one section of the wall, there were about 20 photos of Bigfoot. We stood there and stared as he told us a great deal about each photo and where he was when he took them. He then pointed out one in particular and said to us, do you see this picture here? I was less than 20 feet away from this Bigfoot when I took this photo. We stood that close to each other for over 10 minutes before it walked away. He then offered us something to drink and eat and told us to hang for a minute because he had some other things he wanted to show us. He stepped into another room and returned with a sturdy old milk bottle crate. He placed it gently on the table and started to carefully remove some items that were wrapped in burlap. As he began to unwrap them, he placed them around on the tabletop and we could see that they were plaster casts of footprints. He went on to tell us that these casts had been gathered from many of his favorite locations. He showed us the first one he had ever found, cradling it in his arms like it was his baby. And then he went on. We found out that he no longer makes casts, telling us that if he kept making them, he'd have no place to live. That's how many footprints he comes across. He told us that he's so tuned in to where this group lives that finding their footprints would be like your wife picking up your socks from around the house. We held some of the casts in our hands. There were large ones and small ones. In other words, they belonged to young ones and adults, and he referred to the family groups as clans of Bigfoot. I'll get back to this in a moment, Bill, but there's something I must interject at this time. Later on, my husband and I were both in total agreement about a single point. Why would a guy whose house was filled with so many beautiful natural artifacts have fake photos and staged footprints as part of his collection? It wouldn't make sense for him or anyone else to do something like that. In our opinion, these items and photos were real. He took the photos and he had found the footprints just like he said. He saw that we were more than interested in his evidence, so he said the following to us. I want you to know that I have never taken anyone into this area before, but if you are game, I will invite you to come with me if you would like to. I told him that we would love to, after which Sarah immediately interjected that we would let him know. Charlie just smiled and said, happy wife, happy life. Later on in the week, after having had many discussions about whether or not to go with Charlie, my wife agreed that I could go, but that she would not go herself under any circumstances, saying that it was much too dangerous. We wouldn't know where we would be going or what we would be getting ourselves into. 
At any rate, Charlie and I got together and met up. I was really excited, but before we began our excursion, he said the following. These creatures are very quiet and docile. We are entering their home and should act in kind. I can't guarantee you anything other than this. If you follow my lead and stick with me, I promise you that you will see a Bigfoot for yourself. Rome wasn't built in a day, and everything that I have discovered can't be seen or hiked to in a day either. But if you're willing to spend the time, I would be glad to have you tagging along. I just smiled and started walking. He referred to the region that we were entering in as their home. According to Charlie, this region was about 200 square miles, perhaps even more. It was some fairly rugged real estate, yet over time I realized that it wasn't all rugged. At times we walked through relatively level timber and fire trails, but we'll get back to that as we move along with the series of hikes and events. We had hiked for hours through some rocky crags and hillsides, eventually breaking out into some tall pines. Charlie stopped by one spot to examine some trees that were toppled together. They were leaning against each other, forming something like a teepee, and he pointed out that these types of tree formations were some of the first indications that he needed when locating Bigfoot. It was his belief that these arrangements were territorial markers or signposts, and as we walked around this teepee, he went on to explain that the trees had been placed and had not fallen here. In fact, some of these trees had come from hundreds of yards away, and many of them were very long and extremely heavy. On closer inspection, we could also see that one of the trees was fairly new, Charlie said that this tree had not been part of the stack the last time he came here, which indicates that the Bigfoot are looking after this signpost to make sure it remains in good shape. It was obvious that none of the trees had fallen there right against each other. There were no stumps, and for the most part, the trees that were part of the structure were not the same as the surrounding trees. They had most definitely been brought there and set in place in my opinion. But the question remained, who or what had done that? There's no way that a crew of strong men had ventured into here to play a hoax on nobody, because according to Charlie, that's exactly how many people come through here. Nobody. Let's press on, Charlie said, because there's something else that you've got to see. Pardon me a second, my two pages are stuck together here. We hiked for about another 45 minutes and came upon an old shack that had almost completely collapsed in on itself over time. As we got closer, Charlie said when he first found this shack, he had still been able to walk inside. Now, however, that was impossible. All we could do was look through what was left of a window, since the roof was almost entirely folded in. However, we could still see what he had brought me here for. He pointed out that there were a lot of branches heaped up and flattened on one end of the room. When he first came here, he said that it was much in much better condition, and even then he could tell that it hadn't been used in a while. He said that there was a huge pile of scat that was dried up over in the corner. The scat looked human, but much larger, 
and I could still see the pile, but it was now like a dust heap. He believed that the Bigfoot were actually sheltering here at some point in time. Obviously, they had moved on since then. In all the time he had spent here with all the sightings he had had, this was the only time he had run across something that even remotely looked like a home or a den. We started to head back when Charlie said to keep the faith. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I've been here well over 500 times and have spent countless hours, and all of that time had been spent just to come across some of the things you are now seeing and that I have showed you at my house. There's much, much more to see and do, and who knows? We may see something on the way back. As it turns out, we saw and heard nothing on the return hike, having retraced the steps we took coming in. I said to Charlie that what we had seen that day was very interesting, but that I had been hoping for more. And of course, he agreed with me. However, he stood his ground that this was a battle of attrition. And without the expenditure of time and effort, nothing would or could be gained. We parted ways with him telling me to let him know when I wanted to go out with him again. That night, my wife pretended to be amazed when I told her what we had seen and done. However, the reality was that she was unimpressed that Charlie and I had not encountered a Bigfoot. I contacted Charlie about a month later, and we went back on the trail once again. We hiked right back into the same zone we had been in the last time, so I knew he was really committed to this area. Today, we were going to detour in what he called into what he called the choke point. As we were hiking, we began to enter into a point where there were we were above a miniature canyon. There were two steep hillsides flanking each other, and the hillsides formed what I will describe as an entrance and an exit. Both of these sides were covered with sporadic instances of brush and pines, which sometimes made it difficult to see. It all depended on where you were positioned and where you were looking. We had sat down in a fairly high location where we had a good view of what he called the ambush point. As we sat down, Charlie said that we were going to be staying here for a while so I should get comfortable. We were talking and he began to tell me of how he had found this location and why we were sitting there. He said that on two different occasions, several years apart, he had found a deer carcass not far from the ambush point. One was most of the skeleton of a dead deer, and on the other occasion, he had found a deer that had been killed just a couple of days prior. Charlie noticed that one of the front legs of the skeleton had been snapped in half, and when he had found the second deer several years later, he could see that not only was its leg broke, but that its head had been twisted around. Both carcasses had been found in the same area close to this ambush point. At that time, he believed that this, these deer were being killed and eaten near here because they had been ambushed here. As we were sitting and talking, we were interrupted by a loud and clear knock. There was no doubt about it. This was wood on wood and clear as day to our ears. One clean knock with nothing else following it. So we sat and sat and sat. Three hours later, 
After not having seen or heard anything else, we left. Once we were all clear of the zone, we began talking about the knock as well as the ambush spot. His opinion was that the knock was either a signal that we had been recognized or a Bigfoot was signaling others of its own position. He said that he never knocks back. He only waits quietly to see what develops after the knock has occurred. It was during one of these waiting sessions, followed by a knock two years ago, that three Bigfoot entered this small canyon. His view sitting on that day was that of what became known as the ambush point. Out of his view on the other end or entryway, as he now refers to it, there were two more Bigfoot. He said that this was actually a deer trail, but because the population was well dispersed, he had only seen a few walking in there through the years. His theory was this, that the Bigfoot somehow planned the days that the deer will be coming through. It was just a theory, and he had no way of proving it, but I thought it was as good a theory as any other. On that day, he watched as a small group, which was comprised of several different-sized creatures, began hiding and crouching behind some brush and boulders. He said that what transpired next had actually taken about an hour to develop. A doe entered into this field of view, apparently having walked in from the side he could not see. Suddenly, the deer bolted, followed close behind by two other Bigfoot that were running in hot pursuit. The deer, having nowhere to go, ran squarely into the place where the others were lying in wait. It was then that one of the Bigfoot grabbed its leg, knocking it to the ground and killing it with what appeared to be a twist of the head, thereby breaking the creature's neck. This is the way these Bigfoot were dispatching their prey a broken leg, and then a broken neck. Charlie also had developed another theory. He had found many of what he called blinds in the woods, which he said we would take a look at down the road. He felt that during the day they would individually use a blind to conceal themselves by trails, or they would act as a group by different choke points like this little canyon. At night, he felt they could conceal themselves well enough, since they were also dark in color, though he personally never comes in here at night. All of his sightings, all of his photos, had occurred only during daylight hours. Now, for your sake, I'll do a little fast-forwarding, Bill, or we'll be here for days. Over the next eight or nine months, I had been out with him about one day a month. He had taken me to see some of the blinds, which were really impressive. They had been constructed just like a duck blind, put together with boughs from pines and shielding. Some sturdier branches had been used for support, and all of them were in close proximity to well-used trails. Looking at them, one could clearly see they had been constructed, not arbitrarily formed by any natural means. Charlie was insistent that he had never heard so much as a single gunshot while here. And in the nine months that we were there together, I could have taken dozens of casts myself. It was in the tail end of month nine that we were once again positioned to observe the ambush point. Suddenly, 
a tremendous Bigfoot appeared on the opposite slope. Charlie turned to me to look, his eyes wide open, and we both looked back at this creature. We saw it walk for about 50 feet before it was once again concealed by trees. At no point did it turn or indicate that it had known that we were there. Later on, Charlie said that he believes they always know that we are there. His opinion was that if you don't bother them, they won't bother you. He called this Bigfoot Big Daddy. He said it was the largest of the clan. When I tell you that this thing was enormous, the available verbiage is not adequate. It had to have been 12 feet tall. And the proportions of its body were like nothing that you can imagine. The utter thickness of its frame was incredible. If you've ever seen a movie of a large grizzly standing on its hind legs to look around in a field, this thing would have made that grizzly look like it was junior. As big as it was, its feet still looked too big for its body. Now I wear a size 13. Picture me walking in one day while wearing a size 25 wide. This creature's feet looked that disproportionate to me. It looked like it was wearing clown shoes. It was completely covered in dark reddish-brown fur, and its upper trap muscles seemed to hug its ear area. From the side, that made it look like the head was somehow tucked into the upper body. It had a very lethargic and deliberate stride, and its arm swing appeared as slow motion. It seemed like it was gliding, not walking, but it still had covered some 50 feet in, say, seven or eight steps. Watching this thing was almost like an out-of-body experience, and I can't really describe it. It was as if something had taken hold of me while it was there. I know that sounds weird, but that's the best I can do to describe what I was feeling at the time. After it passed, Charlie clenched his fist while mouthing, yes. That afternoon, Charlie came home with me. He wanted to be there to see my wife's reaction when I told her what had happened. Up to this point in time, she had been very standoffish about this whole affair. Well, when she saw us come in together, her immediate reaction was curiosity and wonderment. She was so happy for me, knowing in her heart that this had become a big deal for me personally, as I had now become the newest member of the Bigfoot Sighting Club. It was absolutely incredible. Talk about chock full, Kev, huh? <laughs> Big Daddy. Big Daddy. It's a good name for a 12-foot Bigfoot. Yeah, you know. You don't call me Big Daddy, I'll pound you into the dirt. Wow. And that was in Idaho, huh? Idaho. Yeah. So, yeah, man, I'm telling you. Tree structures, ambush points, mm. blinds in the, the woods. blinds? That's, that's wild. I hadn't heard of that before. Well, you know, you think of a blind, uh, really all you're creating is a, a shield. Oh, yeah. You just, you know, just a bunch of boughs tied together or lashed together or interwoven, leaning against something else, and you just sit behind it and watch. Oh, yeah, you know? no doubt about it. Uh, but it's it's interesting, man. 
you know, and and more footprints than he could keep casting. Mm. Which once again brings me back to my friend Dave, the logger, who said that, you know, they're finding footprints around their logging sites. All the time, yeah. How many castings are you going to take, for God's sake? You know what I mean? Now, that makes perfect sense. You know, once you're seeing them all the time, right? Yeah, it makes no sense. So here's another 15. Here's another size 20. Here's another 18. Here's another, you know, this one's good. This one's better, you know. Uh, So very interesting, you know. uh, And this guy was obviously committed. But, uh, you know, if you've seen something, say something. And this guy was willing to talk. And it all started around David Bowie being played in a boombox on the tailgate of a pickup truck. Ziggy Stardust and Bigfoot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ziggy play guitar. (laughs) Awesome. Love that account. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting, you know. And and so it goes. And by the way, folks, if you've seen something, say something. And don't send me a message and then ask me to call and not answer the phone or don't return my call. I mean, if you want to talk, I'm the guy to talk to. You can go <laughs> to a website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, hit the contact button, leave a little data, and I will be in touch with you. Right, Kev? Oh, yeah. And speaking of leaving a little data, it's time for listener mail. Excelente. So our first email comes in from Heather D. And Heather writes, Hey, WJ and KJ. This has been on my mind for years. And since listening to your podcast, I've gone back and forth about what it could have been. It's short, but it's bothered me for some time. While traveling to pick up family at the airport in Calgary, Alberta, we stopped on our way back to British Columbia. It was a sort of pull-off on the road, but much bigger. You could have parked two semi-trucks on it. We'd been driving for a couple hours and just needed a break, so we pulled off the road to stretch our legs and have something to drink and have a snack. The four of us got out of the truck and walked around the area. The area itself was cleared of trees but was surrounded by tall brush shaped in a semicircle. I would say we were about 15 feet from the start of the brush line And one of us had a stick and some rocks and was using the stick like a bat and hitting the rocks into the bushes when all of a sudden I heard a deep growling come from the bush. Uh Uh-oh. I've never moved so fast in my life. I was inside (laughs) that truck before anyone else. I'm fully aware that I'm a total chicken, but that scared the living crap out of me. That growl was so deep and so unexpected, but no one else seemed to be bothered by it. The logical side of me says maybe it was a bear, but we could have we would have heard it moving around in there, hmm. and there's no way a fox or a coyote could have made that noise. So I'm out of logical explanations. Well, that's my story. Thanks for reading it, Heather. Kind of weird, Kev. I just swatting some rocks into the woods, and it, well, I you could get see a that. Response, You're bored, you, know? you know, start smacking some a uh, little batting practice. Yeah, but you know. Yeah, well, a big growl coming from in there could have been could have been a bear, you know. But yeah. I understand her suspicion and wondering what it what it was. Yeah, and I wonder if one of them accidentally uh, nailed something <laughs> with the little rock. 
Yeah. Well, it sounds that way. Uh. <laughs> Hi. We're glad you pulled in here. Mm, too bad no one else is around. My name's Ernie, and this is Flash Cadillac. <laughs> and too bad you hit us with a rock. <laughs> now we're going to have to hit you. Now your friend in the car can watch us dismember you. Here. Yeehaw. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to switch gears a little bit, but this email came in and I really like it. And it kind of hits back of, uh, it hits back a little bit on the bigger mission here or the bigger outcome, at least. I can't claim it as a mission, mm-hmm. but it comes from Jonathan. And the subject is life is a cycle. Hmm. And the message goes, as we get older, it becomes all too real that our bodies and our minds aren't quite as sharp as they used to be. I was recently diagnosed with spinal stenosis and a few other unmentionables, and I wanted to personally thank you and Kevin for some of the comments you've made during your Christmas special and the change in my mindset on that day. Oh, um, in the change of my mindset on that day, I wanted to also tell you that your program has kept me from thinking certain thoughts that are just unfortunate for this time of my life. Who would have thought that the big hairy man would have an impact on me as I got older? Well, that he's real, and the only way he doesn't exist is if it was if he listens to the government. So <laughs> I'm enclosing a wish to you both. Have a happy new year and Godspeed. This is probably the toughest time in my life, without question. I have now handed over my journey to God Almighty. It's the little things in life that I appreciate the most, including my, my inability to walk and some days even deep breaths. Wherever my journey takes me, you need to know you and Bill made some of my unbearable days manageable. <laughs> Happy New Year, and please be safe, especially if you're feeding a dog man or lending your phone to some <laughs> black-eyed children. <laughs> Jonathan. Well, Jonathan, you are you are now going to be in all of our prayers, and I think, I think you're going to be fine because it sounds like you have a great attitude. But it is true. This I, I, I was particularly caught by your comment that life is a cycle because— you know, Bill and I were talking about actually before this call because uh, I got like a pinched nerve in my neck, they think, and it's just not much fun. And it just seems like, I, I mean, I have nothing to complain about, believe me. But, you know, that cycle, you don't realize it when you're at the beginning of the cycle that it is going to be you at some point going to all these different specialists and, you know, and meeting all these different doctors and things like that. And it's a cycle. And, uh you know, you need you need your faith, you need your friends, you need your distractions to get through it. And I am so pleased that, you know, we're able to help you even a little bit in this journey uh, beyond beyond the prayers and hope, but just from the entertainment and some of the messaging. So God bless you, Jonathan. I think you're going to do fine and we'll stay away from Dogman. And uh, definitely not lending our phone to any black-eyed children, <laughs> no matter how nice they ask. Yeah, we love you, Jonathan, man. We're glad to have you aboard, and uh, Happy New Year, and uh, Godspeed to you and yours. That's it. Godspeed, Jonathan. 
Wow, Kevin. Yeah, we're we're going to end on that, Bill. It's such a powerful uh, note. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. And like my brother said, if you see something, say something. And a happy new year to all of our listeners from KJ and myself. And remember one thing, my friends. If you should be hiking through the wilderness in northern Idaho, or anywhere else for that matter, you best remember one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.